Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Have you ever thought about how much insect herbivory has changed over tens of years, hundreds of years, or even millions of years? Well, my guest today studies exactly that, and her findings are going to blow your mind. It is very unexpected, the results that she's gotten, and her work is really able to touch a lot of different fields. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Lauren Azevedo-Schmidt, and she bridges this wonderful world of modern ecology and paleoecology using fossils and modern leaves in ways that are so cool and interesting. But most importantly, she's super passionate about her work, and this was such a fun conversation to have. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Azevedo Schmidt. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Lauren Azevedo-Schmidt, welcome to the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you about your work today, but first, let's start with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this. So um, what do I do? I'm an ecologist is what I would like to kind of broadly call myself. Nice. Um, but really, I'm an interactions ecologist, and that's not really a term that we think about, Um because I kind of just made it up a couple of weeks ago. Um, <laughs> but it's, I'm really interested in thinking about how two communities, um, specifically plants and insects, how they interact. And so um, what I'm really passionate about is thinking about ecosystems in more of a dynamic form. Right. So ecosystems are constantly changing and they're, they're moving and they're adapting and they're shifting and they're doing all kinds of things. And so I like to think about how these two communities that I really love to study, plants and insects, are constantly responding to all of the crazy chaos and variability that's happening within any given ecosystem. Um, but what I also do is, as an interactions ecologist, I do this at both modern, but I also do this in the fossil record. Nice. And so we can do this across a ton of different timescales if you're using the right methods. Yeah, yeah. And I love that because you hear a lot, well, I'm a plant ecologist. Well, I'm a fish ecologist. It's like ecology is the study of interaction. So I'm happy it took this long for you to coin that term, but we're here. Uh, we're here. And I can't I think it. of a better marriage of organismal biology than insects and plants, really, when you get down totally. to it. I mean, it's like horse. I'm pretty biased. I love plants and insects, but I, I also agree. I think it's really interesting to think about the world from kind of the ground up. Nice. Rather than up, down. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's where it begins, right? So, yeah. but where did you begin with this interest? Because obviously there's a million ways to get to this route. Uh, were you just a nature nut or did something in schooling happen? Where did this all begin? That um, is a really not straightforward answer. Awesome. So um, I'm from California originally. I'm from Northern California. I was born in Santa Cruz in the Santa Cruz Mountains in like Boulder Creek and Coralitas area. Um, I when I was a kid, I ate plant like I sat outside in the grass and ate grass and clovers and dirt a lot. Soil, nice. technically, it's living. Um, but <laughs> and so, soil people don't get mad at me, and so they, they will. <laughs> they will. I know, but they're great. And so, um, yeah. So I just kind of grew up outside, and, and but my parents are interesting. Um, my parents. Are, I've always thought of them as being naturalists. Um, 
my dad went to school um, to study fungus. That he was a mic- like mycologist. Nice. Um, he loves fungus and in Santa Cruz. I don't know if it's still going on, but there used to be the fungus fair. Um, so like how you have, you know, like a state fair or whatever. Like there's <laughs> the fungus fair you could go to. Nice. Um, but my mom's always known the answers to like which plants are growing, the Latin names, the connections, and so I kind of just grew up in the background in my head. But my first bachelor's degree is actually in art history. Um, I went to school for art. I never, my sister was the science brain. I was more art and music, always music nice, um, and things like that. And so my first bachelor's degree looked at art history and it looked at um, non-Western art, which ironically, um, really like Southeast Asian art. I just love, um, but I love all non-Western art and a lot of the things that I focused on were on natural mediums. So rocks and, um, you know, trees that were used to paint, things like that. Um, and I spent some time, I was a, a big rock climber back then. I used to, um, you know, hang out with friends who had bands and we would bat way before van life was was cool. This was like, <laughs> um, oh, yeah, but those are the greatest times. Hell yeah. Um, so, <laughs> We used to, you know, go to Yosemite and Red Rocks in, in Nevada, which is my favorite, favorite place. Um, Joshua Tree and all this kinds of stuff. And casually, my dad, actually, after me kind of years of bouncing around after my first bachelor's, suggested, why don't you go back to school for geology? You seem to really love it. And so I did. Um, and while I did my second bachelor's in geology, I actually was able to take a class from a paleobotanist. There's not that many of us. Nice. Um I'm kind of in that like intersection of all of these things. And so um, William Baxendale, he's at MSU Denver and um, one of the happiest human beings I've ever met in my whole life. (laughs) Man skipped down the hallways. It's just pure joy, that human. Um, And he, I love taking his class and, and thinking about this kind of rock climbing world that I had been in so long and my mom and my dad and it just kind of all fit hmm. like together all of a sudden um and I one day happened to realize that my graduate advisor um Ellen Carano was up at Wyoming and I happened to be in Denver and I sent her a message and just was like hey I'm kind of interested in maybe working with you and she actually responded which is crazy because <laughs> right. it was I don't know what I'm doing yeah. like <laughs> And yeah, and then I worked with her and really kind of dove into plants and insects even more, which was so hmm. great. Um, so it's really not linear and there's lots of side jobs in there. And I used to work in kitchens and I was a preschool teacher and I've done like all these things. And so like my path to academics was as windy as I guess you could possibly be, I think. <laughs> and yet here you are. Here I am. Yeah. And and it just goes to show you, I would guess, there was no predicting that was going to happen. No. Yeah. You know, I actually play this game in my head a lot. I think it's because of my research. But I like to think about, like, what would have been. Yeah. And yeah. I think about, like, all the different lives. Like, if you, if you believe in, um, you know, alternate universes, which is, like, a huge thing in Marvel Comics, which I love Marvel <laughs> Comics. And... Um, you know, you think about all these different realities, like, Mm -hmm. are they actually there? Like, that's so cool to think about. What is that? What is that Lauren like? Right. Who stayed in art history? Instead, I just have 
really cool art. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've wasted a lot of time being mad at the past. But then you stop to think in those moments, you go like, well, it all got me here for better, for worse. So yeah, uh, yeah. guess just got to take it and go. Yeah. And it makes you so interesting. You know, there's that, there's the the greatest line. One, I think my favorite movie on the planet is uh, Harold and Maude. And <laughs> I love Maude. That's I love awesome. Harold too, but I really love Maude. And, and she has that line about, you know, you have to go out and live and she spells out live, you know, L-I-V-E, you have to go out and live. She says, otherwise you got nothing else to talk about in the locker room. And I think it's just <laughs> the best thing to think about because yeah. you don't have to be this straight line. And yeah. Yeah. And look where it got you. I mean, incredible combination of deep time, being able to geek out over fossils, but then apply what you can learn from the past to what's going on in the amazingly beautiful and diverse world we live in today. I mean, yeah. that to me is like your work is the perfect intersection. So I was really jazzed to find your uh, website. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy you found me. Yeah. And so, yeah, you, you are able to look in the past and that's one of the best concepts. And it's one of those things that like you take a geology class, I forget what they call it, but you really do realize that like the physics and the laws of chemistry and stuff like they don't change. So what happened in the past can really truly inform and vice versa. Right. Yeah. And the craziest thing is, so like I, you know, I grew up on the water. I grew up in the river. I was a river rat like my whole life. And um, when we started this project for my PhD, which is looking in modern ecosystems for like where fossils are likely being deposited mm -hmm. um it's a lot of its rivers and mm. fossil record we have a lot of it's wet environments for leaves um and i told my advisor i was very pessimistic and you know i, I wrote this whole proposal for a dissertation that i was like i don't know if this is gonna work <laughs> um yeah and i i just didn't i was like i have lived my whole life in the creek mm -hmm. and i've never seen a leaf in the sediment there's no way mm. like i know in theory they have to be there and there's this hilarious picture of me that um, a wonderful undergrad who was working with us, she came down to Costa Rica with me. And the there were like there's this picture she took of me with this first leaf that I pulled out of the sediment with this just like slap happy grin on my face and really tired because we had like a terrible flight from my oh, man. from Denver to Miami. So we were so, so tired. And I literally was walking on a low tide on the bank and my boot picked up this leaf there were so many leaves and i just sent it to ellen and was like oh my god i've never been so happy to be so wrong in my whole life <laughs> oh that's so cool yeah. but you know when you think about what you have to do to achieve the work that you've done to do the science that you do you have to really have attention to detail and I fall victim to this all the time. You think of fossils as like the single organism, a perfect leaf or a nice insect on, you know, a nice piece of rock. And obviously there's a ton of prep to get them looking good and to make them scientifically valuable. But when you think of ecology and the study of interactions, how is it that you as both a paleobotanist and an extant ecologist can look at a fossil and get ecological information out of it? Because they seem so static and you're missing, no one wrote that history down. You just have to do that detective work. Where does it begin? What do you look for? Yeah. So, well, I mean, so fossils, like sometimes I actually have one right here. Oh, um, douche. I have a leaf fossil. <laughs> I, have a, I also I have, have fresh leaves. And I didn't like plan this, by the <laughs> way. I just always have these things around me. Oh, good. Um, 
But like sometimes they look like trash. This is an absolute trash fossil, but it's still a leaf. I like um, it though. Yeah, it's cool. Um, it's about sixty million years old, I think. No um, yeah, NBD, right? Yeah. But yeah, I think um, you know sometimes. Yeah, so sometimes they look like trash. Other times they're beautiful. Yeah. Like you just pull them out, and you're like, "Oh my goodness! Like how is this? How is this so intact?" Right. <laughs> um, but really, all it is is you're just studying patterns. So I actually like to think about this in more of a a real world application, I guess, in, in for myself. So I'm a big trail runner and, and mountain biker. Um, and in Wyoming, which is where um, we I used to live, you know, it snows a lot. It snows where I am now, too. But there I spent a lot of time out um, running trails out in Wyoming mm. um, in all, all the winter. And so when you're running or you're hiking or you're walking or you're bike riding, you are making an imprint in the snow, Mm. right? So you have your foot tracks, but then if you start kind of keying into those patterns, you're seeing, well, I see my footprints and they're going this direction, but, oh, there's a different shoe tread and that's going a different direction. And, oh, there's kind of a skid mark. So maybe there's ice underneath there. Maybe I should be careful. And then you can see, oh, there's jackrabbit trails and, there's a small mammal coming through here. And this looks like, you know, pronghorn and there's hmm. poop and there's like, oh, that's probably prong- pronghorn poop or elk poop or something like that. And so you're, all you're doing is, and when you're doing that, or that's what I do, I don't know if anybody else does that, but that's what I do. <laughs> and I see the patterns and they tell me that this pronghorn was running this way. What were they doing? Were they evading a predator? Is there a fox around? That's hmm. interesting. Right. Or is there a bunny and the bunny is, you know, moving by itself or does it have young ones? Those are those tracks the same or different. And then what am I doing? I'm also coming. I'm a part of this ecosystem as it's changing around me and my footsteps are telling somebody else about the conditions, too. And so I think that that's at least to me, a good way of thinking about it. And so all you're doing is if you took all of us in that scenario, the bunny, the pronghorn, myself, everything else out of the out of the picture, and you could only look down a plot level, right? Like a foot by foot. If you looked at all those different tracks, you could kind of put the pieces back together. Hmm. That's all you're doing in the fossil record. <laughs> and right. And so yeah. you're just looking these patterns that that are there and so with fossils you know you have millions of years depending on which interval you're working in um i my fossil work for like my master's i looked at the transition between the paleocene and the eocene and right in the middle of that or at that transition i should say sorry um, we have the PETM, which is the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum. Um, it's mm. about 56 million years ago, and it's our best analog for current anthropogenic change. Oh, and so yeah, right, super yeah. cool. And so in that interval, you know, you're walking up to. There's a lot more to that, but like you're just going up to outcrop, and you're basically smacking the rock with a hammer of some kind to get a big chunk out, and then you're splitting it open to look for leaf fossils. But while you're doing that, you're you're like thinking about well, what does the grain size look like? What does um, what does the color change? Does the grain is the grain size consistent, or are there abrupt changes throughout it? And that can tell you 
you know, changes of the velocity of the water that's carrying the sediment that's carrying the leaf. And so, you know, and then you're, and then you tune into the leaf itself. Is the leaf really beautifully preserved? Is that going to tell us about how much it, it traveled or didn't travel? Or are you looking at the damage that's on there? And so you have kind of all these different scales you're pulling into it and the damage being the insect damage specifically, you know, does it have a lot of feeding damage on it? Is there just a little bit or can I maybe, maybe I can't even see any with my naked eye and I need a microscope to see it. Right. And so you're just putting all of these little (laughs) patterns and pieces together. And so it's not stagnant. It's, it's, you know, it's so beautifully complex and so it's so dynamic. And I think that whenever we pick up rocks, we tend to think of them as being this like singular object. And it's, oh man, it's just, it's so not. Yeah. And and that's, I think, what I admire most on the long list of things I admire about geologists and paleontologists in particular is the detective work and the knowledge base that you have to have to look at a rock and start to ask those questions or at least piece some of that information together. Not yeah. only what is in the rock, what kind of habitat created this rock, how old is this, you know, but when you think about the, the challenges, I mean, I can go out and pick up a leaf in my backyard today and go, okay, this is damaged. I don't know necessarily if it's insect or not. And so from that perspective, when you were jumping into this kind of work, I'm guessing there's a learning curve. And and how do you familiarize yourself with modern damage, let alone looking at a rock and going, I think that's evidence of insects versus this got torn because something stepped on it 60 million yeah. years ago. Yeah. So this is actually one of my, um, my very good friends, um, Jesse Alston once said this to me. He is a, now he's, um, at the, uh, University of Arizona in Tucson. And, um, he's married to one of my best friends, Jessica Rick. And so, um, they, we, they were hanging out with, with me and, um, some other friends on my deck back in Laramie. And I, as I often do, turned and saw a leaf catch the corner of my eye, you know, and I saw it and I was like, oh, that's damage type so-and-so because we have a catalog system and there's, you know, damage type four and five and 37 and 279 and all these different things. And he just like starts laughing and he was like, do you have all of those? Like, so there's 276 of them, I think. Um, He's like, do you just have those all in your head? And I was like, yeah, kind of, not like all of them, but like kind of, yeah. I know like roughly where I need to be in the number scheme. Cool. And he was like, that is the most random group of information you could possibly have in your brain at all times. Um, and he's to totally right. So, right? <laughs> yeah. It's so random. Yeah. Um, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. And yeah. so the interesting thing is that, so leaves like humans, we heal ourselves. Leaves do too when they're still attached to the, to the tree. And so if a leaf is, pretend my hand is a leaf and, <laughs> you know, I'm still attached to the tree. So my arm is the tree itself. Right. And so an insect crawls up on me and it, you know, feeds a big hole or something on my leaf. Well, for a human, it's just a scab, right? You've fallen off your bike. I have a lot of times oh, yeah. you end up with a scab because your body can regrow the skin. Well, a leaf isn't, it's not going to regrow that skin, but instead it makes a scab. And so it 
basically it cauterizes the wound hmm. and you can see that in the fossil record. Nice. And so it's called a reaction rim. Um, and that's how you can tell if it was insect damage, right. That happened. Um, that was, you know, an insect feeding on the tree. So you can see that you can see that in the modern, you can see it in the fossil record. Um, and damage type itself is, it's just patterns of, of feeding. And so you can also tell damage apart from like a rip or a tear. And I'm sure there are instances in the fossil record where we quantify it as, you know, some damage and it is something else. Right. Sure. And so I think that is, um, that's one way of getting about it. But then the other thing is like, yeah, once the leaf falls from the tree, it is, um, you know, it's, it's no longer able to regrow that, that scar, really, that scar or that reaction ran. And so maybe, uh, you know, an invertebrate or a fungus or something is feeding on that leaf tissue, but it's no longer living. And so it's not going to regrow that. And so you can tell that Hmm. in the record hmm. which is really cool yeah that's so neat uh, again the attention to detail though just to get familiar with that sort of search image let alone the luck yeah. of geology right and that's the other thing that amazes me is you know i can go out and and hit certain spots and find plant fossils but it's coarse grain sandstone stuff i can tell it's a plant couldn't yeah. tell you for the life of me what was happening to that plant so i'm guessing you also have to look in specific types of layers, sediments, and, and and areas to find enough fossils with the right kind of preservation, right? Yeah, totally. Okay. Um, yeah, so like leaf fossils are fossilized in, um, in like wet environments. And so things like swamps, rivers, streams, ponds, lakes, things like that. So you're not going to have like an arid environment. Right. Um, but it's, it's challenging because it's also like you said, it depends on the, the grain size. So like Sandstone, although it is my my favorite class of rocks, I absolutely love sandstone, especially orange sandstones of like Arizona, New Mexico, yeah. Moab, beautiful Utah. Um, those are my absolute favorite, and so, but they're not going to have leaves in them. Um, they might have what we like to call plant hash, and <laughs> it's it's not a scientific term. I like um, it, <laughs> but it's just like the crap that is like chewed up in the water and as things are like moving around and like you know it's organic material and you can see sticks and twigs sure um, sometimes it happens like after a big um like high velocity event mm -hmm. right and so you can have like a big flood or something like that um that's like has a lot of power behind it and it's moving a lot of stuff but it's chewing everything up right and then it just deposits this like hatch um so normally for leaves to to fossilize and to fossilize well that we can actually get usable data out of them because even hash could potentially be informative if mm. you're looking at like you know organic content of a rock right because you need to get the organic material you're going to get that from plants um and so it's totally useful for, for what i'm interested in in looking at it's not and so we need you know things that have been transported but the sediment's fine enough that it's not going to like completely destroy it mm. but what's really interesting is sometimes you get these like really oddities that don't make any real sense and i have <laughs> one of my favorite ones is actually for my masters um 
And it's an Eocene site in Hannah Basin, Wyoming. And Hannah Basin, Wyoming is amazing. Um, The town of Hannah, Wyoming is incredible. Um, There's a town, a neighboring town next door in case anybody is ever in Wyoming, especially in Hannah, Wyoming. Um, In the summertime, Hannah is this very small like boom and bust you know mining town i don't even know what the population is right now but probably only a couple hundred there is so yeah (laughs) yeah that too but there's you know there's a grocery store and there's like always a bar right because every town always has at least a bar or two got it um there's now a gas station again and but that's like really it um there's a couple of things oh the greatest rec center but But next, like next door is this town called Elmo and Elmo has a bar in it. Again, always, there's always a bar and they have the best summer cookout. And it like the whole town (laughs) comes out from Hannah and Elmo. And it's like this guy who is in the back of this bar with this massive pit. And there, everyone is always so kind too, which is a very Wyoming thing. Um, And is just the best time. So if anybody ever ends up in those two areas in the summertime, I think it's on Thursday night. Highly recommend going there. Noted. Um, <laughs> anyway, I digress. So, it's okay. What was I even talking about? Leaves and plants. There we go. Okay. Cool. Spots. So there we go. So there's this amazing location that I have that we found for my master's and it's uh, an Eocene site. It's like 50, oh, 55, 54 million years old, something like that. Um, that we believe to be a fossilized um, blood plane. Mm. And the coolest thing about this place is you, I mean, you can pull out like boulders from the hillside that have productive leaf layers on them. And it's, it's pretty important to try and get the biggest piece of rock you can, because then you can split it. Ah. But the cool thing about this is that we think it's a flood plane because, you know, if you've ever seen a flood, hopefully from a safe distance, yeah. right? You have the flood bank, right? And so you have the rivers normally going here and you have the upper, the regions that's like higher up, right? You have the flood plain. And then when the water is, there's too much water, right? It kind of like drapes over that. Mm-hmm. Well, in the fossil records, sometimes you can see that because it's a change in the velocity. So you have a really powerful moving river that can hold a lot of sediment and, and coarser sediment. And then as the water level is dropping out, the velocity is decreasing. And then the water isn't like holding on to those large particles anymore. And those are falling out and they mm. fall out onto the um, floodplain. And then everything that's on top, that's like the finer stuff and the lighter stuff and the leaves fall out on top of it. And so this site is really cool. It's got this like really coarse yellow sand, hmm. like it's crazy. It's this like crazy, crazy conglomerate sand. And then there's just these incredible dense leaves, like Ooh. right on top of it. Huh. <laughs> I've so, like, I feel yeah. like I've seen versions of this in modern times, right? Yeah. Yes. I can picture this. This is good. Yes. Good. Okay. That's my, <laughs> that's my hope. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's so beautiful though. And you just have these like dense, dense, dense mats of leaves that are just on top of this coarse sandstone and it is absolutely beautiful and you have to have like the perfect conditions for that right Right. and so if for some reason we were able to like peel back those layers of leaves which you can't do 
there's like finer sediment holding those leaves together. And so you have this like, I always call them leaf packs because they're packs of leaves um, in these like really dense mats. Yeah, I just call them leaf packs. That's what I call them modern too. And so they're just on top of this sandstone. Are they super fragile to work with? I can imagine trying to like tease that out. It's It seems like it would be fragile because I don't know just seems that way <laughs> it's not because it's like it's on like it's like a pretty big thick block of rock okay and so um you kind of like and i just don't split mine i just like leave them as big as possible yeah and um there's actually a pretty great story about ellen my master's and phd advisor her and i were sitting on this outcrop and she really likes to split things because this is also our longest walk um and it's like a pretty yeah rough terrain to get down in there which then you have to climb out right um and so she which makes sense wants to cut them down smaller so we can bring more back at a time right and we do this over a couple of days of bringing samples up and but sometimes she'll break one and i was like (laughs) you know like nervous every time she was doing it and finally she broke one and she was splitting it down and i just yelled at her in spanish (laughs) <laughs> and she just looked at me and she was like did you just yell at me in spanish and i was like i did stop breaking my fossils <laughs> like <laughs> and you know you shouldn't yell at your price usually yeah. <laughs> but that was cool and so it was fine but it was hilarious ah <laughs> uh, the field work moments <laughs> i know it's yeah. so good but yeah so so they're not that fa- they're not that fragile but they are a pain in the ass to work with because yeah. you have like 20 leaves on one block and so you have to like under a microscope be like okay leaf one and then you're like okay here's a tiny little sticker i'm gonna put that right there and this is gonna be leaf one and then i'm gonna turn it and i'm gonna look at leaf two and so you're like instead of having 20 nice easy blocks or like you know leaves to look at you're like how in the shit do i organize this this and i'm picturing like this giant boulder being rotated as best as possible under a scope or some sort of like fragile expensive lab equipment we use dissecting scopes which are the i guess i've never bought one but i feel like they're the cheapest scopes so that helps yeah (laughs) yeah but like you don't want to like mess it up and then you're like you have to you have to make it thin enough though that it even fits underneath there dang It's yeah, it's the logistics of those types of things that people never think about. You're like, oh yeah, it's yeah. kind of an important thing to think about, but like who ever would have thought about that? Well, again, my admiration stems from like it's not enough to just know the stuff and be able to see it and and assess it from a scientific perspective and also just appreciate it as a human. But the processing, the getting it to that point alone, like the the skill sets involved, it's kind of like being a good botanical artist. It's like it's not enough that you know plants, but you're also good at art, like it's frustrating because I didn't get all of those combination of skill sets. I just kind of like plants. So hats off. <laughs> well, I wish I would have gotten the art. My dad was, my dad was an amazing, I remember his sketchbooks when I was a kid and they were so cool. Um, he also had a really, really beautiful bug collection. Like he had to like, nice. they were pinned. Um, and so he was the art, like the artsy one on that. My mom has got a good hand too, but I, and my sister, credible artist, I didn't get any of that. And so I'm like, Man, you guys suck. <laughs> processing fossils is your art. You know, I actually hate processing fossils. Oh, no. I hate it. <laughs> I, it is like, it is probably my least favorite part because it's so meticulous. Um, 
I think collecting I, the way that I collect my modern stuff mm-hmm. is is my favorite. Okay. Um, like using like an air scribe and all of that stuff to like process. Like this is why if you like if if you're somebody who is a really good like fossil preparer, I swear you should get a medal for this <laughs> because you are the most patient human being on the planet. Oh, yeah. And you like. I think I think fossil preppers like preppers, people who prep fossils. I don't know what the right yeah, word is. Good there, combination but there. I don't understand how they do this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know how they do it, but like, how do you do it? Yeah, I, I'm going to give a shout out. You should. Everyone should follow this guy Goldbugs on Instagram. Uh, he does the he he processes these insanely detailed, hyper well preserved trilobites that are pirateized. So they they are truly yep. gold on this beautiful black slate, but. He posts these videos of how he processes them. And I remember messaging him and saying, that looks so satisfying. He's like, this is the most nerve wracking, intense stuff. Like, I hate it. I shake and I'm so tired afterwards. So, yep. yeah, uh, even the people that are really good at it, it's a job. It's exhausting. It's so hard. And yeah. air scribes, it's the same thing as like, you know, tattoo artists who have a tattoo machine and barbers. And it's the vibration of the <laughs> right. It hurts your hands. Yeah. You go numb. We have a lot of tattoo artists and barber friends, so I know it's good. Good people to know. They are. They're the best. All right, but once you get these rocks into the lab, you start identifying which leaf you're going to start using for your analyses. You mentioned sort of the snow analogy, and I really like that because it's something anyone that's been in the snow, if you haven't, I really admire you, (laughs) can really empathize with. Or sand. We'll say sand works too. Um, yeah. But regardless, you go looking for patterns. And so when you start looking for those callus marks, can you drill into like, okay, this is this sort of class of insect or does it more kind of fall into like what you hinted at with the types of insect damage where you have like a larger classification scheme? How does that start to sort out to even start generating data, I guess? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the, the, the steep learning curve and <laughs> that is, you know, the damage typing guide that we use. Um, it was developed by Conrad Labandera and there's, you know, a handful of different, um, 2007, I believe is the correct date for the first one. Um, and there's been a subsequent revisions and by revisions, I mean, constantly adding more yeah. <laughs> like damage. Yeah. Um, and so you know, there's all this different, there's damage types. And so that is like a really specific pattern of damage. And so like whole feeding is a functional feeding group. Mm. And so it's a larger group of all of the different damage types that are found within that. And so I think like you can have a hole that is like oval and circular that's like between one millimeter and three millimeters. Well, that's a different damage type compared to a hole that is, you know, more like low bait and greater than five millimeters in diameter, right? And so that's like very high resolution, but those overall all fit within that functional feeding group of hole feeding, right? And we have margin feeding, skeletonization, mining, piercing and sucking, gall damage. There's seven. (laughs) And, And so... The hard thing is, is like in the fossil record, especially you're not actually watching, like you can't see the insect making the the damage right, pattern. Right. 
And so you can't like tie it to a specific species. I mean, sometimes you can say like, you know, this, we see a similar pattern that's made by this species in the modern. So it's likely that, you know, this group of insects had already evolved. So maybe some distant relative of what we currently see is making a damage similar to it, right? Um, like things like mining and galling, those are more like species specific. You can right. sometimes make those assumptions. Cool. Uh, but I like to think of, you're thinking about their tiny mouths. Yeah. I think that is the best thing ever. Like, how, I don't know. I think insects are adorable for the I, most part. I, I agree. I don't find them scary. Right, they're so sweet. Yeah, they're awesome. Um, they're just doing and that. So, I know, they're great. I just, yeah. And they're so silly. They have the silliest form, like forms. <laughs> How did you evolve this ridiculous form? And I know it serves your purpose, but like humans were pretty ridiculous too. So I yeah, guess I can't yeah. say That's that. But weird naked ape thing. I know. So like, I mean, who am I to judge, right? Sure. But <laughs> but I think like you know the functional feeding group. You're talking about their mouth mm-hmm. and how do they feed? You know, so like you know, a grasshopper and, you know, caterpillars and things like that who have mandibles, who have jaws like we do, they can feed on, like, grasshoppers are kind of, you know, they have really powerful jaws. And so they can eat through anything. I mean, that's <laughs> an oversimplification, right? But they can eat through a lot of meat. Sure, yeah. But if you're, so if you're a caterpillar, you can eat through leaf tissue, you can eat through um trichomes so you know the like hairs that we see like on tomatoes and mm. um you know pot plants um things like that trichomes are yeah. they are you know hard for maybe a different type of insects but for you know grasshoppers they just like chomp straight through all this stuff but if you're if you're a, like a caterpillar especially like a really small caterpillar you have a really tiny little jaw and so you're feeding damage pattern is going to change at your different life stages. And so it, getting it down to that group and understanding like, okay, overall we're looking at insects who have mandibles probably. Mm. I like to think of it like that, um, that you're putting them in these group versus like piercing and sucking like an aphid, right? You have like a straw mouth that you're like punching into the leaf to get out the sugar basically. Sure. And so a piercing and sucking animal has like a straw mouth part versus something that's making you know whole feeding and margin feeding things like that those can share mouth parts and functional feeding groups can share mouth parts too or you know like a mining insect that has to come down with you know, you're you're an insect that is mining like the interior between the top and the bottom layer of a leaf and so you're just, it's an easier way It's to, it's not easier. That's not the correct way of putting it, but it's a, it's just a different way of classifying insects into kind of traits, basically right, right, yeah. groups of traits, yeah. right. Versus like their specific species. Right. And, and to me, that's exciting because it, it kind of helps us get over this hurdle in paleontology of not having that smoking gun, yeah. the, the perfect fossil of something chewing in that moment because I'm going to guess that's either never happens or very, 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 very rarely happens. Uh, you'd be very lucky yeah. to find one, let alone enough to build an entire thesis around. Totally. And and functional groups are great, too, because you start thinking about the roles that organisms have played through time. And that's also cool because 
some might still be alive or their relatives are, but we, it's, it's probably a different suite of all across the board plants and insects yeah. from 66 million years ago to now. <laughs> well, and it's cool to think about what those insects look like, the forms of insects that like snake flies, um, rapidities, if I'm remembering that correctly, um, snake flies, I've seen one, um, and it was on a road trip. And it was on my husband's shoulder and my husband, he's a little bit more nervous about insects than I am. And I got so excited. I just went, (gasps) and he was like, ah, like freaked out and hit it. And I was like, oh, that snake fly. Like, (laughs) no. Uh, And uh, I wanted a picture of it. He's like, don't gasp and point at my shoulder. (laughs) Parker could tell you similar stories. Right? I they're, lose I lose words in moments. I, I just I have to react. And, I'm so excited. I know. Yeah. But so they're living fossils. They literally have had like the same form since I hope I'm really hope this isn't incorrect, but I'm pretty sure the Jurassic. Dang. They so like whatever their functional form is and whatever like that is suiting them so well that they haven't had to evolve to like change really. Love, that. Right? Love it. And I'm sure an entomologist is probably gonna yell at me right now for saying that, but like that's when I'm thinking about their form and their specific form of trait. That's what I think about. Um, People tend to get upset when they ask me, well, what insect did that on a fossil? And I say, I don't really care. And they're like, (gasps) (laughs) and I was like, it doesn't really matter. Like I, yes. Would it be cool to find that probably one in a hundred million fossils? I would say, where I have an insect actually doing the feeding and I can I absolutely say this is what's happening, right? Of course I want to see that. Who doesn't want to see that? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. But like, I don't care who's doing the damage in the fossil record. I can still see the diversity of the damage that's happening, right? And so I know that there's a diverse group of insect herbivore, like a community that's happening around these plants. And I more care about, well, what does that insect herbivory do right. to those plants? How, that, how how does that influence the plant themselves? Or how is that interaction being influenced by the environment that's growing and or that's that's occurring around them? Right. right. Especially as plants are immobile, um, right? They're rooted. They can't migrate. They're not ungulates or other things that migrate. Um, and insects for the most part, like, yes, winged things fly crazy distances sometimes. Monarch butterflies, like, that's right. the crazy thing. Um, <laughs> but at least parts of their, of their life stage, they're not as mobile, right? right? Like, monarch caterpillars aren't making these great distances. They have to wait until they have wings to actually fly. Um, and so it's just kind of a different question of, of how is that environment and that's happening that in the fossil record, we can't see it. But how is that influencing the interaction between plants and insects? I think that's way cooler to yeah. think about. Yeah. And it, it answers a lot of bigger questions about ecosystems in general. And and again, as we stated in the beginning, plants and insects, it's as old as time, right? And when you think about what you can do with this approach and how you can apply it, it goes beyond simply asking what was eating these plants or what functional groups existed at this time period you and your colleagues have been able to then look at forward in time, look at modern times and make comparisons. And to me, that is super exciting because 
it gives us a bigger picture of what's going on and how long it's been going on. And so tell us what made you take that leap from the paleobotanical world to go, hey, I can look at this stuff in modern leaves and make a comparison. Yeah, so this was actually, um, it's kind of a complicated answer of like, how did this like really come up? And so, um, as things always are, right? Um, but Kirk Johnson, a long time ago, I think he was, I'm going to get the story wrong. And I'm just going to say it. I wasn't there. And, but I'm probably gonna get this wrong. Kirk was the story of my brain, again, could be completely wrong. He was like on the Amazon. And there's a picture of him like looking at leaves that were like deposited in the sediment on the side of the river. And this started kind of a conversation. Um, and Ellen, my advisor, started kind of thinking about this, like, well, like, could we actually do this? Could we excavate these leaves that are being deposited that in theory should then be like turned into fossils? And people have been thinking about this since like the 90s and before then of like, you know, we know these processes are occurring in the past. So they have to be occurring in the modern. But we had, nobody had ever sampled like this really before hmm. and sampled as extensively as I did for my PhD. And this there's a larger project that I, I was really interested in thinking more about the ecology of it rather than just like our leaves, you know, like deposited here or not. Um, and so this, it was kind of like all of these veins kind of coming together of these ideas of people being like, oh, yeah, we should do that or, you know, whatever. And then it's it's not a it's not a glamorous process to, to <laughs> get leaves from the sediment in the modern. I find it very fun, but like it's a lot of work. Um, and so that was kind of where it started. And I for me, it was perfect timing. I was fin I finished up my master's and. Um, wanted to stay working with Ellen for a PhD and she had um, her career grant was funded off of this idea of making this analogous record between the modern and fossil. Hmm. But how we did it was really kind of up to me. Um, and so I said, yeah, let's, let's do this. I think we can do this like in this way. Um, and we talked a lot about like the processes that we're trying to mimic and like, how, how do we actually do this? And so that was kind of the first slow moving gears. Like you're trying to get this going of like, what actually makes sense? Yeah. Um, and what's feasible to, to even do. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how this thing kind of just happened yeah. to come together. And it's really neat. It, it, stuck out to me because in those moments you you read the the pop science article then you read the abstract and you're like okay well you definitely have more examples available to you today to compare how does that how do you unbias that sampling effort and then to read what you did was to go and grab modern leaves from sediments saying okay this is a comparable environment comparable scenario this helps unbias some of that search effort that is so cool. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think it's pretty cool, but I had a pretty good, I had a pretty fun time doing this project. Um, I'm very fortunate that I finished my PhD and so really liked my project. That's yeah. not the case. Yeah, let me tell you from personal experience. <laughs> right. Oh boy. It's rough. Yeah. It's rough. We don't talk about that enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and <sighs> it's rough. Um, 
but yeah, like we have, you know, like Robin Burnham in the early nineties did really cool work looking at like leaf litter studies um, and how like the process of fossilization. So taphonomy, like how that influences what we're seeing in the, or what, what could be um, influencing what we're seeing in the fossil record. Right. But again, nobody dug it, like nobody dug things up. Right. And so the thing about this in particular is that you can't make fossils. Right. <laughs> and so when you're in the field and you're you walk a lot, right, there's the there's the the opening line of Jurassic Park, the very first Jurassic Park. Right. When we get our dear saint, Dr. Ellie Sattler um, and the greatest, the greatest and our only paleobotanical pop culture person. Oh, I absolutely yeah. adore <laughs> Ellie Sattler. Um Oh, Jurassic Park Dominion. Let's just talk about this the rest of the time. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so I'm just here for Ellie. I don't care for anything yeah. else. So anyway, there's that great part at the very beginning when um, at the very first one, and they talk about Dr. Grant being a digger, right? Mm -hmm. And like, oh, you'll never get him out of Montana. He's a digger. And that's just kind of what happens, though. Like, <laughs> It's you're just like walking around a basin, hitting stuff with your hammer because you're like, that looks like an organic rich rock. I'm going to hit that. And like, I'm going to kind of like scrap it apart and hit it with a chisel and split it and see like, oh, there's plant hash in there. Hmm. Maybe we do a little bit more and we see if we can actually get some productive layers of leaves out. And so like that is it's a totally random sample. Right. And right. it's a subsample of your forest. Like we all recognize that. We talk about that. Yeah. And so how do you actually do that in the modern without like biasing yourself? Yeah. And the best answer I have is that I randomly on, you know, a riverbank um, on like a dynamic river or on a small tributary in a swamp, a swamp is a little bit different or a sampling method for a swamp is a little bit, a little bit different, but the other ones, it was kind of like, I'm going to plop down right here and I'm going to dig hmm. and I'm going to see if there's leaves and Oh, look, there are. Great. Shucks. I'm going to collect these <laughs> and then I'm going to go sample like a hundred meters away or 50 meters away, whatever I actually have available to me. So you can't make a riverbank. You got to figure this out, right? Truth. And then I'm going to at that spot, now that 50 meter mark or that hundred meter mark, I think 50 meter mark actually, but I'm going to plop down again and I'm going to look for those productive layers. And so you have to kind of like, you know, you're looking in the rough kind of area. And so you are, you know, that there's, you have these different search images that, you know, are going to likely produce leaves for you. Um, but, you know, it's totally, it's totally random. It's, that's the best way to replicate what we have in the fossil record, because it is, it's random. It's complete <laughs> dumb luck of like why these specific processes happen in this perfect order to sit here and compress and become fossils and sit here for X amount of millions of years for me to just walk up right. and crack it with a hammer and be like, Oh my God, there's a leaf here. Right. Yeah. It's just kind of, I don't know. It's just wonderful chaos. I think that yeah. just like comes together. It's great because instead of hitting randomize and the code in R or GIS layers, you're right. letting nature and physics kind of do the work for you and, and yeah. offer you up and, and what you dig is what you get. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you are targeting like, you know, to make good comparisons and to make sure, you know, you are targeting certain sample numbers. Right. And sure. so for me, you know, these, these, we call them, you know, our quarries within our forest. So like, you know, we sampled 
three modern forests, Harvard Forest in, in Massachusetts, and then the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center in Edgewater, Maryland, or CERP. Um, and then I went down to Costa Rica to La Selva. Um, nice. was at the Organization of Tropical Studies, OTS. And the reason you know we chose those three sites is one, because they're they're established research centers. Um, and that gives us, you know, lab space and things that I would need to actually pull this off, right? Mm. Um, equipment. That's the word I was like. There you go. <laughs> yes. So, equipment. Um, but it also is, there are three very different forest types, right? And so you have the temperate ecosystems of both um, Cirque and Harvard Forest, but Harvard Forest is a different um, diversity of, of trees and likely insects too. And so you're capturing a very, a three forest, if you can call it a latitudinal gradient, but it's a three forest latitudinal gradient. But more importantly, what I care about is you're collecting three very different environments. And yes. so you have the wet tropical and you have the warm temperate, and then you have the, the cool temperate of Harvard forest. Right. And then within each one of those forests, I'm targeting specific areas that in the fossil record fossilize. And so each one of those forests, I sampled a swamp, I sampled a dynamic river. And so something that has like a lot of velocity behind it, um, that probably has flooding events, things mm. like that. And then I also studied, um, or sampled, I'm sorry, like a smaller tributary. And so something that's like more of a, I don't know, a helper river. Someone's going to get mad at me for saying that, but like, it's just like a smaller river, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so those were to mimic what we see in the fossils. Um, and then within those, there was like lateral samples, sure. right? To make sure we're getting, um, you know, spatial variability. Right. And so in total, what that actually looks like is a number I will never forget. It is 10,941 leaves. Oh, that it's I so specific. It's so serious you know, in your, your psyche. <laughs> it is. It is. It took me two and a half years to... So every single one of those leaves I went through with a dissecting scope, I, so like you get them out of the sediment and, you know, you clean them off and you press them and you dry them. And then you take them back to your microscope and you look at them as though they are fossil. And so you, you look at the insect damage that's preserved on them the same way that you would for a fossil. And so for me, that was doing this 10,941 times, technically if you do that you do it twice because i look at the top and the bottom side oh, wow. um wow and quantify every single every single instance of insect damage and the abundance of it so if there's like whole damage you know it's a damage type three we'll say and there's five of them so i quantify all of that took me two and a half years um yeah i can imagine and I think my eyesight's actually pretty screwed up from it, to be oh, totally no. honest. Especially towards the end, because COVID, right? Oh. And so then it was like, all I did was, I just like, it. COVID was, was actually a good thing for me, I think, because it shut everything down. Yeah. And so all I did was sit at my scope and just cranked through leaves. And Pure focus. Yeah. And to celebrate being done, I actually went riding. Um, we did a bike trip with a bunch of friends to Fruita, Colorado, and Good. had just awesome time riding bikes. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a lot. To get through. <sighs> Empathy. 
I'm pouring empathy into the computer screen for you right now. Wow. (laughs) But at the end of it all, you get this incredibly thorough data set that spans modern times and tens of millions of years. And then you get to ask the question, how does insect herbivory from the past compare to the present? Which is a really rad question to ask. And now you can be certain you have a very thorough data set to start answering that. So, big picture, what the hell did you find? (laughs) I found something that I actually never could have possibly imagined. Um, So now, you know, we have we have oranges and oranges. We have comparable data sets, which is what we were striving for. Wild. (laughs) Um, And it's so cool. It's so fun. What did we find? We found that modern insect damage that was preserved on the leaves that we collected is absolutely astonishingly shockingly breathtakingly almost greater than the last 66.8 million years um for both for mostly the frequency so um so the the percentage of of leaves that have damage on them um some change in diversity too which is a lot more complicated to think about um I mean, is any of this simple thing yeah, about right. it? But um, it's not as like clean cut of a story, sure. and so I think it's um, it's a very interesting one. But yeah, the amount that modern insects are feeding on these in the in these three forests is something I never I never imagined it to be this different. Right. Um, I had you know my suspicions that it would be different because of how destructive of a force humans are. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think about humans are agents of dispersal and disturbance. Mm. Um, and I think that's really interesting to think about how not long we've been around um, compared to the vastness of the geologic record especially in the capacity that we are acting on the terrestrial landscape today. I mean, we're acting on the whole earth, right? Yeah. Um, but my wheelhouse is in the terrestrial system. Um, and so I think that it, I, I just, I still don't think I've really come up with a very good way of describing the level of shock <laughs> that I still currently have when I look at, you know, the figures in this paper that just came out. Um, it's, it's just kind of mind boggling how, how much greater the insects are feeding right now. Yeah. I mean, when you considered, like you said, destruction, disturbance, all of the data we have on insect decline and the fact that you were comparing this to modern times, it's not even like, you know, pre-industrial stuff. It's wild. And in fact, when I first saw the tagline, the headline, I was like, no way. (laughs) Yeah. No, I read that wrong. And then I was like, oh, no, no, that the data. OK, wow. And it's so wild to think because you think before we got here and started to really industrialize, everything was different. Everything was more more nature. Right. And so to think that insects are doing more herbivory damage today than they are in all of the millions of years you poured through is wild. But as with any good scientific inquiry, it brings up so many more questions. And so you all venture some really interesting concepts, very testable concepts to look at this in more detail to try to start explaining these patterns. And so what were some of the thoughts you all generated on why this pattern exists? 
Yeah. Um, oh, look, a dog. Can you hear my dog? Yeah, yes. you promised it. And now there I is. did. Yeah. I did. I'm keeping they, it. It's staying in the episode. They're the, I mean, I actually, they're in my like dedication for my, Good. Uh, for my PhD dissertation because dogs should be, right? Yeah, dogs rock. Um, so, what are some of the things that we are, that we're proposing? My, actually, my favorite one is rate of climate change. And so, what does that actually mean? And I guess kind of like, why is that cool, right? Yeah. Is when you're comparing the modern to the geologic record and this this type of geologic record, when you're spanning 66 plus million years, you're capturing climates that exceed temperature-wise and atmospheric CO2, what we currently have, right? And right. so we have these like, quote, hothouse worlds in the past. And so because we compared what we found in the modern to a geologic time frame or a geologic um yeah time frame that encompassed times of hothouse worlds, if it was just temperature alone yeah. or just CO2, we should have seen spikes. Right. In this type of way, right? And we didn't. Nothing compared to the amount, the frequency especially um of damage that's occurring in the modern and so that's weird right especially because we're showing you know we're having all of this insect um decline like biodiversity is tanking for so many different organisms um and insects are one of them and so what is going on with that right and what we think is that it's the rate of change because you know, the the PETM or the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum, which I talked about like a while back, right? Like yeah. that is a good analog for current climate change, but the difference is a magnitude, right? right? And the PETM was so much slower compared to what we're doing now. And we're talking, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of years compared to, um, you know, a century. Right. And so... It's so fast. And so rate of change is going to affect plants and insects differently. And so insects are probably having a competitive advantage over plants because, you know, insects are, they have a much shorter life cycle than, than trees. That's which is what we looked at, mm -hmm. right? Um, much shorter life cycle and just life in general. And so they're constantly adapting to their changing environment a lot quicker than plants can you know you think about an aphid's lifespan versus like you know a gigantic sycamore yeah. right yeah so different and so that ability to adapt to your surroundings is so much greater for those insect communities and so they can target things and my favorite thing actually like target plants in in like, like their most vulnerable states yeah there was some research that came out that I discovered while I was, while we were writing this paper that I think about probably almost on a daily basis. And it was basically that like certain insect species are, sh are basically shifting their hatch time. So when they emerge, right, they're timing um, their hatch closer to when leaves are first fledging out when they're when they're first their bud burst yeah. and so you have these really tender vulnerable leaves that now that gap between when those leaves first came out 
And when the insects that could possibly feed on them were, you know, were developing and at a stage where they could eat and feed on these leaves, there used to be a longer time so that the leaves could, you know, grow really fast and become bigger and thicker and, um, you know, maybe have some trichomes and have some, some functional um, defenses against these insects. Well, now these insects are timing it so that they're closer to when those leaves are the most vulnerable, which they can just decimate them. Um, and so it's like, it's that it's a switch that you wouldn't necessarily think is so important, but it can be potentially. Um, and so that's, you know, one mechanism of, of how insects are adapting and becoming, you know, they're have a competitive advantage over the plants that they're feeding on. And it's not really a big deal because insects have been feeding on plants for a very long time and insects have been feeding on leaves for a very, very long time. And when I say very long time, like, you know, millions and millions of years, tens of years, hundreds of millions of years. And so there should be a balance, right? Like plants should be able to adapt to this. But the problem arises is when you have all the other factors that are also influencing our forest ecosystems. We have se- more severe droughts. We have deforestation. We have, you know, um, changes in nitrogen cycling mm-hmm. um, because of fertilizers. And then we also have, you know, just like the the plethora of things that we're doing to our forest ecosystem. So yeah, maybe our forest could mitigate having higher rates of, or higher amounts, I should say, of insect herbivory, if they didn't also have all these other things. At some point, you can't survive that right. for, forever. It's like, you can't sustain that. Um, and so that's, I think that's why that one's my favorite one to think about. Um, but there's also like other important things, which I kind of just said is with these forest ecosystems, you also have like the effects of of urban areas on these forests and so you have roads and thinking of you know roads and houses and infrastructure and um factories and pollutants and all these kinds of things that are going to really influence how insects can move across and within even sometimes landscapes and so that's going to change where and how insects are feeding um and so like where we sampled these forests are research preserves basically and so you are surrounding them by infrastructure and you know some interior too right we have buildings we have labs and things like that but it's i would argue that the interior infrastructure within a research station has a much less of an impact (laughs) in the everything else around it yeah yeah um and so, and not all of them are like that, right? Like sure. it depends on which station you're at, but, um, so you're going to influence like our, do we have just higher densities of insects within these areas? But then that's important too, because then you're potentially making hotspots for insect biodiversity, which we want because we right. want to serve them. Um, and then, you know, there's like the things that we think are harmless as humans, like planting beautiful plants in our gardens that are not native. We're constantly moving around plants for just the landscaping purposes alone. And so inherently you're also moving around insects. Right. And so that's going to change. Now you have potentially introduced 
an invasive insect that can then spread to a forest. And because it's released from its natural predators, it's going to feed and reproduce ravenously because that's our whole purpose in life is to make a thousand of ourselves. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, those are the kind of big like hypotheses of these, these mechanisms that we think are driving these, these really high frequencies of insect damage that we found. Yeah. I mean, like any good science, more questions should be generated. But to me, this blows the lid off of a lot of different realms of science. I mean, deep time to modern times, whether you're into insects, island biogeography, big theory, natural history observations, these all feed into our understanding. And what I love the most is it's so easy to get trapped in these easy stories. This happens, this happens, and ergo bad. There's so many different avenues that you can carve off of just adjacent inquiries into this data set, let alone what the implications of it all are, that it paints a more detailed and nuanced story that when people start to get simplified, you're like, no, it's never that simple. And there's, it's just, it's so much more fodder to think about. And it shows you how wide, even simple, I guess, manifestations of what we do as a species can have yeah. massive impacts. I mean, I always think about that when birders go to like these urban nature areas, they're like, look at how many birds we can see. I'm like, I love it. I love that that habitat's there, but the diversity you're seeing might be more of the fact that they have nothing else, nowhere else to go. And that alone, but yeah, moving invasive species, introducing new plants. Oh man, <laughs> it's just so much. <laughs> I think, but I think that's the most interesting thing is we as humans don't, and as, as a society, we don't like to think about ourselves as a species. Yeah. Yeah. And we are, we are a species, we are an animal species. We like to think about ourselves as this exterior thing acting on these natural systems. Well, I'm not arguing that we are a natural, you know, like we, we were a natural evolution that occurred in time. And the things that we're doing are something that I, I highly doubt, you know, anybody you know, you talk to, talk to your grandparents, always talk to your grandparents more, but like talk to your grandparents and, you know, in the great depression, I remember stories of, you know, my, my grandmothers and great depression. Right. And yeah. those stories don't make any sense to us really anymore. And so you think about like, just in that short amount of time, how much has changed for our species and how our species lives. And so I think it's kind of a, a cool thing to remind ourselves like we are a species acting within our environment our environment is for lack of a better way of putting this i guess we are just kind of like bleeding all over everything <laughs> it's, it's not this yeah. just like simple answer of like you know we love to say climate change right because it's so important to understand climate change understand the implications and all of all of the 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 hard things that go with climate change it's so important but it's not in this it's not just one thing right. um and like yes the rate of climate change but the rate of climate change is so much more important than climate change itself yeah. and and then there's all these other pieces to it and so i think it's maybe a good reminder to remember that like the ways in which humans are influencing our terrestrial biosphere, 
are not, or they're just so multifaceted. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I, I wish for a management standpoint and for a conservation standpoint, we had an easy answer, but we just, we don't. And that's not to say that we shouldn't do anything. That's just saying that we should think about the, all of the puzzle pieces, not just the easiest one or the biggest one. Yeah or the most politically driven one that fits into this overall piece of of puzzle. Exactly. And I mean, even placing it in the context of insect decline, you know, it's not all insects. Some are going to benefit from the changes we're wrought, you know, on the ecosystem. A lot of others are not, but your data set, this, this, the analyses you've done show that, yeah, some can really benefit Maybe some others are winking out, but it's it's never that simple. And to sit and tell these simple stories, it just gives these sort of um, straw men that then can be poked at and yeah. and just make more arguments and more confusion. When in reality, the nuanced story is more meaningful. It's more impactful. It's also way more interesting. And we don't have to like cloud it in all of the jargon that we use for publications. We can right. tell these stories like you've done today. Uh, and get a more complete picture that it's not always going to be this straightforward. We come onto the scene, everything else dies, raccoons and rats and cockroaches, right? Like it's and not plague. that Don't simple. Plague. plague, plague, forgot. Yeah. Sorry. Props to the plague. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think that's like the most, actually I, I'm going to take uh, the most sounding thing I think with this particular uh, data set and, and the research that we found, the results we found, here it wasn't just one group either hmm. which is even more complex and even more confusing <laughs> because as you said like climate change is going to climate change urbanization the introduction and, and changing of species ranges you know for all these reasons are going to influence different insect communities differently different groups of insects even differently and have negative positive and everything in between um, effects on it but when you look at how much they're feeding, everybody's feeding more. Wow. And so it's not just like one group, right? It'd be so much easier to be like, oh, this is because we're having, you know, locusts everywhere, right? <laughs> or like whatever. It's it's not that easy. It's that everybody is feeding more. And so what does that tell us? And this is one of my favorite things to think about, which is really scary if you remember the sociological um, and socioeconomic piece to this is that insects are feeding more, right? On these, or they're feeding more frequently. What could that be? Like, what could also be driving that? Well, possibly the quality of the food they're eating, mm. because as CO2 increases, a plant is basically, um, there's just a there's a lot of CO2 so that a plant can then pull it in for photosynthesis, turning it into sugar and all those things that we know about photosynthesis. But what happens is if there's a lot of, of CO2, a plant can photosynthesize more. But then what happens to your nitrogen? It gets flooded and it's a smaller amount hmm. in your leaf and because you have more you have more carbon. And nitrogen is a very important nutrient that we all need, which is why, like, you know, vegetarians eat beans. We need nitrogen (laughs) um, instead of getting it from meat. Well, insects have to feed likely more Hmm. to get the same amount 
of nutrients. And I, I also, those data that I did measure, like the percent of the area damaged. Yeah. So how much of the leaf is being consumed? I can't tell you about that yet because I haven't um, <laughs> finished that. TBD. I have ideas, but I haven't finished it yet. Well, you just have to have you back. I will. I'll happily come back. But, um, you know, it's, are they just eating more tissue? And that's terrifying because we all survive on our crop plants. And yeah. so what is that going to mean for agriculture? And so that's where that really scary part comes in. Right. I'm still an optimist. I still think we can. I think we are all smart enough to figure this out in a way that is not going to destroy everything. <laughs> Good. I think innovation is is possible for us. Yeah. I really do. But yeah, that's, I think, another interesting piece of it. And so, yeah, you can <laughs> keep going down this rabbit hole of like, well, what about this? But what about this? But what about this? But what about this? <laughs> um, and I'm really excited to keep working on this and to... Um, keep adding more data points and trying to see like, does this pattern hold across lots of different ecosystems? Can we yeah. keep building on this um, and start making those connections to like agroecology? Um, Cause I really like food and I would really like to make sure that, you know, people have food. I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> I, will, I will blame that on my Portuguese grandmother, like people and food. I just need people to eat. Um, so I, you know, things like that and, and forest health and, you know, all of the the services that we get from ecosystem services from forests is just staggering. And so, you know, trying to think about these things and how, what does this mean for the big picture? And what does this mean, you know, going forward for conservation yeah. efforts for so many different disciplines? And I think that's the most fun part is I don't, I work with so many brilliant people and, you know, all of the undergrads I've worked with, all of the, you know, graduate students, my graduate cohorts and postdocs and professors. And you get to talk to people who do such different things. And I'm just this like dirty plant insect happy person who gets to like run between all of them <laughs> and pull like all of these cool things together. It's this, this beautiful gray area that I occupy that I, I wouldn't trade for the yeah. world. <laughs> well, I mean, it's those gray areas where lights start to turn on in other fields. And that's, again, what you just outlined there, the little snapshot of thoughts you had on it, which I'm sure there's plenty more. Um, so many. <laughs> you could touch so many fields. And this is what I try to reiterate every time is like, you could be late career, you could be in a completely different career, you could be just be starting out, and you don't necessarily like that one aspect of science that you think is the only route in your trajectory getting here, but also the work you've done and, and the fields it can apply to just go to show you that no matter where your interests lie, if these are kinds of things that get you excited, there's a way and, and a lane to apply it. It may not be easy. It may not be obvious, but there's so much that can come from this. And I'm so happy to hear that this is a data set that you're going to not only continue to work with, but add to as a result. Yeah. yeah. My, you know, I think the people who want to have these hard kind of questions that are are very multidisciplinary and, and multifaceted. Like there are so many of us who like to think about these questions. And so, yeah, like you can come completely out of left field and, and find your camp of people um, in academia and, and in, in research. We don't even have to say academia, just right, in right. research. 
Um, that's the coolest thing about research. All you need to do is just stand around and ask questions and right. then like exactly you get to go like my favorite field collection collection story from the modern stuff is my favorite site is La Selva because I love Costa Rica. Um I oh man, Such I a love good it. Spot. I love that area. Have you been? Yeah. It's so great. Oh god, it's phenomenal. Um, it's so it's the best. And everybody who works there, like staff and like every aspect of it is just so amazing mm-hmm. um so great but i love costa rica but the funniest story was at cirque actually i got stuck and the undergrad um rosemary who was working with me almost had to go get the smithsonian water police oh, no. to like pull me out of um like <laughs> mud like I, I was basically in the chesapeake bay up to i'm six feet tall by the way and i was like <laughs> up to, like my thigh in sediment That's pulling leaves scary like, into like because i found this beautiful leaf deposit i was so stoked about it and i just got i was like i'm getting it and <laughs> rosemary can i stay in my, in my kayak i was like totally just stay in your kayak i got this and i'm like scooping up all these beautiful leaves and like throwing them in my kayak and then i was like oh i just dug myself even deeper <laughs> how do I get out? And she basically had to like grab my arm and like, just like beach whale style (laughs) out of it. And it was hilarious. Um, It was pretty fantastic, but that's the best part. Yeah. So good. Those field stories are great. Exactly. It's something it's stories to tell and it's experiences had maybe not the best in the moment, but I always look back on them through rose colored glasses. I'm a type two fun person. I'm just so annoyingly happy at like the stupidest and most like ridiculous things. You know, you get like, you're like, Ella Selva, did you ever go over the basket thing over the river? No, I never got to do that. No. Oh man. You know, that's how we like went to like look for sites and it was like, cool. There's like caiman and probably alligators below us and pouring down rain and there's some venomous snake somewhere that I don't really want to think about right now. And you're just like <laughs> pulling yourself across the river. Like, that's awesome. Oh man. It's so good. And so with all of this in mind, knowing that there's plenty more on the horizon and, and who knows what the next inquiry is going to, where it's going to take you and what's going to come out of it. Where do people go looking for more information about the science you and your colleagues are doing? Oh, um, well, you can look for our paper. Um, if you want to read that, you can listen to this wonderful podcast. Thank you. Um, I just wait for my papers to come out and don't <laughs> judge me for how long that takes. <laughs> don't ever judge anyone for how long that takes. Thanks, <laughs> reviewer two and three. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I've actually been really lucky with reviewers. I've actually had really good, really good. good reviewers. So I can't even really begrudgingly say that. Um, That's good. Yeah. So thank you, anonymous reviewers who reviewed this this paper. Nice. Um, yeah, I don't have like, for me, I don't, I, I try and put like updates out on my little bits of social media, but I don't really have a social media thing. So you're better off um, for it. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Um, looking out for that kind of stuff. Hopefully we should have actually, there's a very, there's a very exciting paper that I'm hopeful that will be out in the next handful of months. Um, kind of building on this data set and thinking about how insects um, across this wide um, latitudinal gradient, some assumptions that we have about where the most amount of herbivory occurs. I actually have a paper that 
is submitted and hopefully it'll come out in the next couple of months that will nice yeah that will um kind of show some really cool really cool results too um and testing some of those those assumptions that we have that maybe we shouldn't <laughs> bum, bum, bum. well i i smell another episode on the horizon so <laughs> But seriously, thank you so much for just being so passionate about what you do, but also taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us about this. Uh, this is phenomenal. I will save everyone the trouble of trying to find all of your work by just adding links to the show notes. But thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on this. This was this was so much fun. And this is an awesome way to talk about this paper that I I honestly think about all the time. Good. and. I really encourage people walk outside your door and just pick up a leaf and oh, just yeah. look at the insect damage because we, we see it all the time and people don't notice it. And now hopefully people will see it more because it's Good. just cool. Excellent. Well, again, thank you. Hang in there. And I look forward to talking to you in the not too distant future. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks. All right. Incredible stuff. What amazing data sets they have generated, but also the inquiries and the findings. It, it just it brings up so many great questions that many people can take aim at to try to answer. And along the way, we're going to learn more about the history of our world, the future of our world, and the ways we as a species are affecting it. I thank Dr. Azevedo Schmidt for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us, and I can't wait to have her back on to talk about more of what this data set can tell us. Of course, all of the relevant links can be found in the show notes for this episode, so just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, where you can find links to her website, the paper we talked about, and so much more. You can also find ways to support the show, because I literally couldn't be doing this without the support of all of my listeners. You can do that by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, or picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, or stickers. And all of those links are in the show notes as well. So check it out. Once again, that is indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.